All right. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see everyone loving each other and uh, fellowshipping. All right. We are uh, continuing our series on apologetics, trying to start with some easy terminology so that no one's confused. (laughs) I'm teasing people. All right. Good. Well, let's start out with a word of prayer. We will do some review, and then we will go into the new stuff. I'm excited about it. I can see you're excited about it. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have together. We thank you that we are able to think about these things and even uh, hopefully uh, think more on you because of these things. And Lord, we ask for your help and guidance uh, over this lesson and especially uh, when we come together to worship you uh, after this. Lord, we ask these in your son's name. Amen. All right. Well, last week we made a distinction between what it means to have a worldview and what it means to have an apologetic. Okay, these are two very different things. So uh, does anyone remember what a worldview was? (laughs) I know, I'm just glad you're here. I don't expect... Uh, Remember that uh, a worldview was the way that you interpreted the world around you. Uh, And you had to have, because of the way God created us in a covenantal uh, structure in our minds, the covenantal structure in our minds determine how we view the world. In other words, uh, we have to have an authority or a criteria in order to understand the world around us. That makes sense. So if I am looking at a tree outside, in order to make meaning in my mind, I have to have some criteria in my mind, some authority to help me know what I'm looking at so I can understand. That makes sense? And we make sense of the world through what? Does anyone remember? What helps us make sense of the world? What is the structured authority in our brains. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, it's always the same. What is that word that we used that helps us remember? It's okay. Again, I'm just, I'm just glad you're here. I love you like you're my own flesh and blood. What was that? Okay. And what is it that helps us determine how we interpret the world? There's this word. You look like you know. Yes. Kind of, yeah. Well, it all stems from this thing. And this thing is the story. Remember, God didn't make us rational animals. He made us story people. The only way we can understand things is through story. Even when someone tries to explain something to you scientifically, right? If I were to try and explain to you uh, the scientific foundation for uh, Richard or uh, what is it, Stephen Hawking's view of how the world started, 
um, it all is explained by a story. If I try to explain to you, even the Big Bang, the Big Bang comes with a story. Everything has a story behind it so that you can understand it. And the story that we use as Christians is a story that Scripture lays out. That God created, man fell, and God redeemed. That creation, fall, redemption story is how we understand the world around us. When we look at the world around us, we see the way things are supposed to be, creation, the way things have been twisted, the fall, and what we're supposed to do in response to that, right? Your pastor is working hard um, in uh, getting us to uh, join him when we over at the abortion clinic. Um, what's the abortion clinic tell us about the fall? First of all, what's the way it should be? How should it be? Should there be an abortion clinic there? No. What's the way it should be? We should want to uh, reproduce, have families, have as many kids as is medically possible. Right? You just want to have children. It should be something you want to do. Want to have kids. But the world has twisted things. You should want to live in a free country, but we've twisted even freedom into, you have the freedom to murder, right? Does that make sense? That's a twisting, so how do we fix it? Well, one of the fixes, one of the ways that we can try and get redemption back into the world is protest. Don't come in here. Have the baby. If you don't think you can afford it, we'll take it, <laughs> right? Our family did it. We got two of them. And uh, I'll tell you, it's a blessing, even this morning. <laughs> you really realize how, how it is that God has designed it for young people to have children as you get older. <laughs> All right. So that's very different than apologetics. Apologetics is a different thing. Now we're not talking about how I interpret the world. Now I have to see what method do I use in order to defend the faith. Now, surely you can answer this question. What will determine the method that I use to defend the faith? I'll give you a hint. I just got done talking about it. Okay, that's true. The thing I was just talking about was, yes, the story you assign yourself to. The worldview that you assign yourself to will tell you what kind of apologetic method that you choose. And that's what we're doing today. Isn't that exciting? I can see it on your face. You're excited. I can barely keep you guys back from, all right, good. You remember from 1 Peter 3.15, we use that as our way of deciding that apologetics comes down to a specific kind of method for defending the faith, but it's not defending your faith merely with, uh, against God's enemies, which that is what it's for as well. But it's not just God's enemies, but it's the doubts that Christians have, right? when unbelief swells up inside the Christian. 
and when it swells up inside ourselves. So you have three groups. God's enemies, those who don't believe. Other Christians and yourself. What's the majority? Right? Two of those three groups are Christians, correct? So apologetics is definitely for the unbeliever, but who is it mostly for? Who are most of the groups? Christians. That's right. Thank you. I, Zeke, 20 points. All right. You have a weird voice. All right. So what method should we use? I'm going to, we're going to talk about a few methods. There's, these aren't all the methods, but really all the methods come down to really just three and variations of the three. Um, so first, I want to talk to you about the classical apologetics. That's your first little uh, bolded point there, classical apologetics. Has it, have any of you heard of classical apologetics? I see someone nodding there. Good. All right. Uh, people that, uh, have you ever heard of William Lane Craig? Anybody? William Lane Craig? Okay. He participates. That is his kind of, that's his baby. Um, he's at least the most intelligent one that's doing classical apologetics right now. Uh, and then there's other versions of it as well, of course. Classical apologetics uh, has two stages to its process. So the first stage uh, uses what we call natural theology. Have you ever heard of natural theology? Natural theology is the idea that from God's creation, we can deduce things from it that lead us to the idea that there's a God. Okay? So you see... Uh, the cell. Uh, there was a time where we thought the cell was the most basic part of life and very simple. Uh, we have since uh, been able to see that the cell is actually quite complex. Uh, very complex, in fact. Which tells us something uh, that uh, maybe, if, if even the cell is that complex, that maybe there's something to this idea of design. That maybe this whole existence was designed instead of accidental. Does that make sense? That's kind of where they go. All right. So they use these different uh, arguments, uh, logical arguments like the cosmological argument. Uh, you know, everything seems to have uh, had origins, and you go into that kind of thing. Design, moral arguments. Why is it that human beings tend to be moral? Um, and then you do all these uh, different kinds of arguments just by looking around to establish that there is the existence of a God. Okay? So that's the first step. You want to, and that's your first blank. And you can go ahead and have a, under, a lowercase g on that because you're not proving the God, you're proving that there, there must be a God. Okay? So it is important that you put a lowercase g there, because um, we're not talking about our God yet. The second part, stage two, uh, employs Christian evidences for the reliability of the Bible. That's your next little spot. So once uh, you've established in the person you're talking to that there must be a God, then you have to say, well, and now our Bible is very reliable. By the way, our Bible tells you which God is the real one. 
as long as I can show you that my Bible's reliable. And so the work of people like William Lane Craig is to first try to convince uh, other people that a God really does exist and that the Bible really can be reliable um, and our Bible tells us which God is true. That's classical apologetics. Now, uh, if you remember last week, we talked about how it is that we have an authority. Remember, did I do the, the, the thumb thing? Thank you. Thank you for remembering that. All right. So I did this, the thumb thing to, to illustrate how authority works. And if you remember, uh, we, we talked about if we were to measure my thumb, we would need a ruler, and we'd get the ruler out, remember? And if someone wasn't happy with that ruler, we'd get another ruler to make sure, but now that new ruler becomes the authority. The old ruler is no longer an authority. It is in question. It needs to be confirmed by an authority. And eventually what we find is that an authority is that which confirms all other things. It can't be confirmed. It is that which is confirmed. Or it's that which confirms other things. Am I making sense? I feel like I need to stop talking, otherwise I'm going to talk myself into a circle here. Okay, so you understand what I'm saying. So, if there is something that you are confirming, something that needs to be confirmed, is the thing that you are confirming your authority? Yes, all right. So, if there is something, okay, this thing here I need to confirm, I need to take other authorities and say, based on these other authorities, we know this is true. In that case, is the thing that I am trying to confirm actually my authority? No. Good, yes, you're with me. All right, no, it can't be your authority. You have used your authority to make sure this thing is right. So if your apologetical method is designed to make sure the Bible is right, and you have to use other authorities to make sure people see that the Bible is true, is the Bible your authority? No. So can someone help me, if, if, if William Lane Craig was here today, I'll, actually our first question would obviously be, can't you just be called William Craig? Come on. Do we really need the lane? Our second question <laughs> would then be, is the Bible really your authority? If it's that which needs to be confirmed. Now this is not, I'm not even talking about being a fundamentalist right now. I'm just talking about logic. And this is something that William Lane Craig would have a close relationship with. He understands logic. Um, he would have to know that if I am doing the confirming of an object, then the object that I am confirming cannot be my authority. That which confirms it must be the authority. This is really simple logic, but not a lot of people understand it because uh, 
Um, have you seen the book uh, by, who's that guy, honey? <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the spot like that. Uh, 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 evidences that demand a verdict. Who said it? What's his name? Josh McDowell. Thank you. Yes. Josh McDowell. So he wrote two books, actually. One was Evidence That Demand a Verdict, and then another book that was even thicker that was like more evidences that demand a verdict. Now, these evidences, is it okay? Let me ask you this Is there anything wrong with evidence for your position? No. Evidence is great. What happens when the evidence becomes the authority? that tells you if something is true or false. Well, then it becomes a problem, right? So we need to make a di another distinction. This is going to be a lot of distinctions. That's why I gave you the nice little piece of paper. Mine has answers on it. Don't look at it. All right. <laughs> okay, so when we address ourselves, other Christians and unbelievers already doubting our scriptures to the point where they need to be confirmed by something outside of the scriptures, we run into a big problem, don't we? Because what if the evidences that now become that which determines the truth or falsity of our, of our scriptures, what if those evidences fail? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a great point. So creation, right? Did God fail in revealing himself in creation? No. Let's look at that in scripture really quickly so we can make sure our distinction is nice and clear. Thank you for that. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Because this is what William Lane Craig, or just William Craig, would tell us. He would say God did not fail in revealing himself in creation, so why can't we use creation to confirm scripture? Isn't it true that scripture is God's word and creation is a form of God's word? And what, what could we say to him except, you're right, William Lane Craig? That's absolutely true, because we can turn to Romans 1, verse 19, um, where it talks about that which is known about God is evident within them, which is all humans. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made. Right? So that they are without excuse. Okay, so creation reveals God just as infallibly as the Bible does. So why can't William Lane Craig use outside uh, use creation to prove the Bible? Here's the issue. Verse 18. I skipped it on purpose. 
Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, what's the next word there, Nasby readers? Suppress the truth. And they don't suppress it because they just don't know it and they just are moving it away. What do they suppress it with? Do they suppress it through just ignorance? Unrighteousness. It is an activity of the unbeliever to suppress the truth. So the two qualifications that we see to be a human, especially an unbeliever, is one that knows the truth and suppresses it in their sin. Now, the question is, how much do they suppress it? If we were Methodists, we could say, well, they suppress it, but, you know, not a lot. It's like a little suppression. It's like a little bit of a push. But, you know, in the end, they see, you know, that, it's, that they shouldn't be doing that. Uh, if we were some flavors of, uh, even in the Baptist world, there are some flavors of Baptists that would say, uh, you know, of course, you know, there's that a little bit of suppression, but in the end, you know, there's something we can hold on to there. There's something they know, that, right? How much suppression do we believe holding to the Reformed tradition? How, suppression, how much suppression are we really talking here? What was that? Yeah. Uh, we would say the suppression would be like absolute suppression. I mean, for you to stop suppressing the truth in your unrighteousness, what would it take? A good argument? For you to come to your senses? Heart transplant, that's right. It would take what I would always told my unbelieving students at the university, it would take an act of God, right? Yes? I have a question. You said in your definition of apologetics that it's defending the faith against God's enemies, so why Yes, so we're going to get to that as uh, when we get to, hold please, okay, we're going to get to that and this, this might be a two-week two thing, it might be a two-week thing, because what we really want to make sure is that we're not walking away thinking, okay, I kind of got that, but I don't understand, so we're, we're going to get to that because that is important when it comes to how do we deal with someone who has access to the Holy Spirit, which is very different than someone who, does, who uh, does not have that and is completely dead in their sin, as Ephesians says. So that's a good question. We're going to talk about it. Uh, because um, another problem we run into, and, I'll, and just to satisfy a little bit of your question so you don't feel like you're blown off, uh, Part of the problem is that we continue in sin and we continue not knowing everything about, about, our, about God's revelation in creation, right? We are able to interpret creation through models because that's how God made our 
brains. Um, if, you study, if you study science or even math, what you understand are models so that you can understand what's going on. Are the models perfect? Well, they're as good as they can be as long as they're workable, but sometimes models break down and then we have to change models, right? So Newton had a model of how gravity works. It worked for a while, but then we understood as Einstein came around that the math doesn't match and that gravity isn't something that is a force based on weight, but rather is a curvature of time-space. That model seems to work better with the math. You understand what I'm getting at here? And so there, there is less surety when we start dealing with creation because there's less surety of how much we know and how we're able to interpret the world. But we are given a guarantee of how we interpret scripture because we have who as a guarantee when we deal with scripture? The Holy Spirit, that's right. So it doesn't mean God's creation was revealed poorly. It means that we are humans that still struggle with sin. And that the guarantee wasn't that the Holy Spirit would help you interpret um, creational world out there, but that he would help you interpret scripture so that you can understand the outside world better. Does that make sense? So the principles for understanding how I have interpret the world are still right here. We'll get to that later. Good deal. And that's where I always get people saying, well, the Bible's not a textbook. You know, we, uh, how do you, uh, you know, the people talk about, you know, the, the Bible doesn't tell you what's inside of a cell and doesn't, you know, doesn't tell you that two plus two equals four and all that sort of thing. But what we're going to find is the Bible does something much deeper than that. It gives you the basis for which you are able to even understand two plus two equals four. It accounts for it which is a much deeper uh, way of doing critical thinking than just the Bible saying, oh, by the way, two plus two equals four, so just so you know. Does that make sense? Uh, so, and we're going to get to that. It's going to be deep. Are you ready? All right. Classical apologetics. So what did we learn about classical apologetics? So far, we learned that there's a two-step process try to convince them that there is a God, and then try to convince them that the Bible is reliable so that they can believe the God in the Bible is the right one. Okay? We found that there's some problems with this. Number one, we just read in Scripture that you don't have to convince someone that there is a God because that knowledge is already in them. So that's kind of problematic. Secondly, we find that if we are going to try and convince someone the Bible is reliable, then what we use to do that then becomes the authority to that person that we are trying to convince. And we're laying the responsibility of accounting for the Bible's reliability on something that is not reliable, our interpretation of some phenomenon, which is not as powerful as the authority of scripture. All right. So those are the problems with classical apologetics. I am giving you very general ideas because we're just starting out here. There are lots of different variations of this. There are people that could come to me and say, well, this guy does classical apologetics. You know, uh, there's a reform people like uh, J.V. Fesco 
that does classical apologetics, and, and he's reformed, and what do you think of him? And I can tell you. But uh, that, this, is, this is very general right now. We're just doing generalities. Generalities. They're not glittering, but they're generalities. All right. No one got that joke? Okay. It's an... A fallacy, glittering, general, no, no, nothing? Okay. All right, the next one, evidentialism. Evidentialism. Have you ever heard of this, evidentialism? Okay, good. Here's a cursory definition. Uh, it uses history, um, usually along with archaeology, uh, argues for the historical uh, reality of key aspects of the life of Jesus um, instead of appealing to general reliability of the New Testament as a whole. Okay? So it's not saying the whole New Testament is reliable. It's just saying, no, we can trust uh, the events uh, in Jesus' life through historical, uh, through historical research. Has anyone heard of Lee Strobel? Lee Strobel, A Case for Christ. Hugely uh, popular. Um, this is his view. This is Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is, uh, I'm not saying Lee Strobel doesn't believe in the reliability of the whole New Testament. I'm saying his method does not require you to believe in the whole New Testament, just the events, the historical events that led to uh, the resurrection, which is probably the most important thing they want to prove through historical research and things like that. Yes? Well, and that's, that's the interesting thing about evidentialism. Um, initially, it makes you feel like you're not crazy and that there is some, something that the whole rest of the world seems to respect, historical research, that points to your point of view. And there is a sense of, ah, I'm not crazy the rest of the world does have to respect me a little bit because, look, there's historical research. The world respects historical research, and this historical research tends to point at me. It's the syndrome that I would equate to when a person in Hollywood ends up being conservative. <laughs> Where we go, oh, that guy's conservative. Hey, yeah, there's something to this Hollywood thing. Right? Matthew McConaughey is conservative. Oh, my Matthew McConaughey is conservative. Yeah, he's one of ours. Oh, hey. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's some kind of feeling of, hey, we're not crazy because everyone respects Hollywood. And who doesn't like my Matthew McConaughey? And he seems to be conservative. Right? And whether you fight that or not, there is something inside you that says, that's right, yes. Right? Even though... 
up until that point, we were noticing how insane it is for a, someone from Hollywood to give their opinion about politics, since we're not looking at you know the most educated group of people in the world. You understand what I'm saying? But then when Matthew McConaughey comes out and says, you know, I seem to be a little conservative. I don't. I can't do impersonations. I'm not good at it. But. I think that that tends to happen when people like Lee Strobel come out and say, look, the world respects historical research. We can use this historical research to show you Christians aren't crazy. Up until that point, people were showing historical research, showing that there couldn't have been any resurrection. There couldn't have, we don't even, we're, you know, we're pretty sure there was this guy named Jesus, but we have, you know, maybe. And we say, well, historical research doesn't mean anything. Then someone says, hey, historical research. Oh, hey, historical research. All right. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I feel like I'm saying, do you understand what I'm saying a lot? Uh, because you're looking at me. And maybe boredom is the same look as confusion. It's possible. Maybe you're just bored. You're like, I get it. I'm just, I just don't care. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm talking to you like my students. Uh, okay. Uh, so I think Lee Strobel helps that initial feeling of, I'm not nuts. But what happens? Once you get that historical research written on paper, all you need is a, is a bright grad student to go, wait a minute. The parameters you put on the research that you conducted were way too wide. If you really put the kind of structure of research that is respected out there, what you would find is Lee Strobel has no idea what he's talking about. I write this big paper, and I show it, and maybe I'm good enough to turn that paper into something lay people can understand and totally deconstruct Lee Strobel's uh, whole argument. Now what have you done to those people that were really depending on Lee? Yeah, now, Lee, now the, their faith is shaken. Why? Because I was really, Lee needed to be right for me to really believe the Bible was right. We would never say that on a quiz. Do you understand what I'm saying? No one would say, uh, I need Lee Stroll to be right. But once you start breaking that down, it really does something to you if you really felt that was important. Okay? Okay. So, um, so with evidentialism, we run into the issue of what happens uh, if I do present real events and I show through historical research and even archaeology that indeed something the Bible said really did happen because we found the trinkets in the desert. The trinkets that show that there was a Jericho there. We found a trinket that said, Jericho uh, is here. <laughs> and we're like, what? And the Bible says Jericho is just like several miles from X, and we know X is still there, and we found the trinket that says, here's Jericho, and uh, the Bible was right. We confirmed what? Yeah, we've confirmed scripture. We're, we found the evidence. Okay. Does that make sense? Now, is there anything wrong with doing that? No. It's wonderful that there's Christian archaeologists out there that are doing this kind of work. It's wonderful. If they found the ark, that would be awesome. I would love to see what gopher wood looks like. I don't know. 
And so that would be awesome. Once you start depending on that gopher wood to make sure you believe, that's the problem. Because as Reformed believers, what causes you to believe that the Bible is true? What is your confirmation? What was that? Okay, what confirms, when you open these scriptures, what confirms to you that what you're about to read is true? Faith. Who gave you that faith according to Ephesians chapter 2? Specifically in the Trinity, who gave you that faith? Holy Spirit. That's right. Very good. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's a that's a good psychological question. Okay, so uh, when you find something out in the world that the Bible has confirmed as true, that is fun and encouraging. When you are excited about it because what you've seen is the Bible uh, obviously is showing or accounting for why you're finding what you're finding in science. When we switch that around and say science is now confirming that it's okay to believe, then we, we've switched things. Do you see what I'm saying? So when I get excited, when I see something in science that Scripture has already accounted for and I see the connection back to Scripture, that's exciting. Because I see Scripture accounting for the truth of what I'm seeing out in the world. And we've made a direct line. It doesn't have to be... A, um, a line that we, that we have to infer. So there's inferred lines. You look out there, you think, someone must have done this. We infer, of course, creation. Uh, when you see something in science class where they say, it turns out that uh, when the Bible's talking about this, what it's saying is this phenomenon, and we see this direct line, that's exciting because now the Bible is accounting for what I'm seeing out in the world. And that's super exciting. When I need that thing out in the world to be true so that I can then have the courage to believe the Bible, then we find this big roller coaster ride going on, right? The roller coaster ride gives us this big high because we've confirmed something out in science and we said, yes, I'm not crazy. Okay, uh, the Bible can be true because we've seen this connection. And then we go way down again because what we find is that the scientists know this. They have their arguments, and they're a lot more sophisticated sometimes than our science books you know, on the high school level. And, and when they get to college and they say, okay, you probably learned in high school, especially when you went to a Christian high school, that uh, this confirms the Bible or whatever. What we really found was this. And they go into this super sophisticated, I mean, when they start saying, you know, 
uh, you know, you think that this is all intelligent design, but what really happened is what we have found is quantum field theory cannot connect well with general relativity unless we have a theory of quantum gravity. And if we have a theory of quantum gravity, what we find is time-space is not the foundation of all things, but there's something prior to that. And so therefore, what you Christians are hoping for just can't, can't work out scientifically. And so when you start getting into that kind of sophistication, the kid's like, but my teacher said, right? And that's why we have a big problem when kids go to public university. They get introduced to a level of sophistication that intimidates them into thinking all the stuff they were hoping was true that was helping them confirm scripture then starts falling apart. My, my colleagues were good at it. I spent 15 to 16 years, I can't remember how many, in the public education world, and I can tell you that is a tactic that they love. They do not look at Christian kids as a problem in their classroom. They're excited because they are evangelists that love it when a Christian kid comes in because they see them as abused children because Christianity has stopped them from becoming what they want to become. And their job as, their, as an evangelist is to help them free themselves from the stupidity of Christianity. And I'm telling you, the only thing that will save them is the Holy Spirit's work in their heart, who is the one that confirms the truth of the Scripture. That is sufficient enough and powerful enough to confirm everything else. It is supernatural. All right. And that's what we have to say about evidentialism. Next week, I am going to review with you classical apologetics and evidentialism. Oh, and I better hear some people responding. I better see hands in the air. Hands in the air, people. So keep this piece of paper, because you'll need it next week when I say, okay, what's classical apologetics? And you'll be like, uh, I don't know. I forgot uh, this guy was still teaching. Oh, uh, classical apologetics. And you'll have it right here. Okay? And you can raise your hand, and you can say it, and I'll go, you're so smart. And especially you, I want you to be the first. Okay. And next week, we're going to talk about the cumulative case, case method and something called presuppositionalism that is a terrible name for it. What we're going to eventually call it is uh, covenantal apologetics. And what we'll find is that it depends on a covenantal view of the world if you're going to hold to that view. And of course it's going to be our view because it has the word covenant in it. So uh, I'm excited about that. I, I can tell that, that we're all excited. So let me pray with one minute to spare, by the way. So I'm very proud of myself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you uh, that you are a God who cares for his children and cares for us even in our infirmity of sin and provides a way. And Lord, we pray that you would um, uh, be with us as we go into our uh, worship time, that the Holy Spirit would work diligently in our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would pray for us uh, the things that we need, even though we don't know how to articulate them yet. Lord, we pray that we would come uh, before 
your servant today as he preaches to us with hearts that are broken before you, eager to hear what you have to say to us through our pastor. Lord, we pray for a turning of our hearts from our sin towards your commandments and towards your love. And Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.